Section 9 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 6. Prison Episodes. During all this time the suffrage prisoners were enduring the miserable and petty tyranny of the government workhouse at Occoquan. They were kept absolutely incommunicado. They were not allowed to see even their nearest relatives, should any be within reach, until they had been in the institution two weeks. Each prisoner was allowed to write one outgoing letter a month, which, after being read by the warden, could be sent or withheld at his whim. All incoming mail and telegrams were also censored by the superintendent, and practically all of them denied the prisoners. Superintendent Whitaker openly boasted of holding up the suffragists' mail. I am boss down here, he said to visitors who asked to see the prisoners, or to send in a note. I consider the letters and telegrams these prisoners get are treasonable. They cannot have them. He referred to messages commending the women for choosing prison to silence and bidding them stand steadfast to their program. Of course, all this was done in the hope of intimidating not only the prisoners, but also those who came wanting to see them. It was the intention of the women to abide as far as possible by the routine of the institution, disagreeable and unreasonable as it was. They performed the tasks assigned to them. They ate the prison food without protest. They wore the coarse prison clothes. But at the end of the first week of detention they became so weak from the shockingly bad food that they began to wonder if they could endure such a system. The petty tyrannies they could endure but the inevitable result of a diet of sour bread, half-cooked vegetables, rancid soup with worms in it, was serious. Finally, the true condition of affairs trickled to the outside world through the devious routes of prison messengers. Senator J. Hamilton Lewis of Illinois, Democratic Whip in the Senate, heard alarming reports of two of his constituents, Miss Lucy Ewing, daughter of Judge Ewing, niece of Adlai Stevenson, Vice President in Cleveland's administration, niece of James Ewing, minister to Belgium in the same administration, and Mrs. William Upton Watson of Chicago. He made a hurried trip to the workhouse to see them. The fastidious senator was shocked, shocked at the appearance of the prisoners, shocked at the tale they told, shocked that ladies should be subject to such indignities. In all my years of criminal practice, said the senator to Gilson Gardner, who had accompanied him to the workhouse, I have never seen prisoners so badly treated either before or after conviction. He is a gallant gentleman who would be expected to be uncomfortable when he actually saw ladies suffer. It was more than gallantry in this instance, however, for he spoke in frank condemnation of the whole shame and outrage of the thing. It is possible that he reported to other administration officials what he had learned during his visit to the workhouse, for very soon afterwards it was announced that an investigation of conditions in the workhouse would be held. That was, of course, an admirable maneuver which the administration could make. Is the president not a kind man? He pardoned some women. Now he investigates the conditions under which others are imprisoned. Even though they are lawless women, he wishes them well treated. It would sound noble to thousands. Immediately the district commissioners announced this investigation. Miss Lucy Burns, acting on behalf of the National Women's Party, sent a letter to Commissioner Brownlow. After summing up the food situation, Miss Burns wrote, When our friends were sent to prison, they expected the food would be extremely plain, but they also expected that enough eatable food would be given them to maintain them in their ordinary state of health. 
This has not been the case. The testimony of one of the prisoners, Miss Lavinia Dock, a trained nurse, is extremely valuable on the question of food supplied at Occoquan. Miss Dock is secretary of the American Federation of Nurses. She has had a distinguished career in her profession. She assisted in the work after the Johnstown flood and during the yellow fever epidemic in Florida. During the Spanish War, she organized the Red Cross work with Clara Barton. I really thought, said Miss Dock when I last saw her, that I could eat everything, but here I have hard work choking down enough food to keep the life in me. I am sure you will agree with me that these conditions should be instantly remedied. When these and other prisoners were sentenced to prison, they were sentenced to detention and not to starvation or semi-starvation. The hygienic conditions have been improved at Occoquan since a group of suffragists were imprisoned there, but they are still bad. The water they drink is kept in an open pail from which it is ladled into a drinking cup. The prisoners frequently dip the drinking cup directly into the pail. The same piece of soap is used for every prisoner. As the prisoners in Occoquan are sometimes seriously afflicted with disease, this practice is appallingly negligent. Concerning the general conditions of the prison, I am enclosing with this letter affidavit of Miss Virginia Beauvais, an ex-officer of the workhouse. The prisoners for whom I am counsel are aware that cruel practices go on at Occoquan. On one occasion they heard Superintendent Whitaker kicking a woman in the next room. They heard Whitaker's voice, the sound of blows, and the woman's cries. I lay these facts before you with the knowledge that you will be glad to have the fullest possible information given you concerning the institution for whose administration you, as Commissioner of the District of Columbia, are responsible. Very respectfully yours, signed Lucy Burns. Mrs. Beauvais, a matron, was discharged from the workhouse because she tried to be kind to the suffrage prisoners. She also gave them warnings to guide them past the possible contamination of hideous diseases. As soon as she was discharged from the workhouse, she went to the headquarters of the Woman's Party and volunteered to make an affidavit. The affidavit of Mrs. Bove follows. I was discharged yesterday as an officer of Occoquan Workhouse. For eight months I acted as night officer, with no complaint as to my performance of my duties. Yesterday Superintendent Whitaker told me I was discharged and gave me two hours in which to get out. I demanded the charges from the matron, Mrs. Herndon, and I was told that it was owing to something that Senator Lewis has said. I am well acquainted with the conditions at Occoquan. I have had charge of all the suffragist prisoners who have been there. I know that their mail has been withheld from them. Mrs. Herndon, the matron, reads the mail and often discussed it with us at the officer's table. She said of a letter sent to one of the suffragist pickets, now in the workhouse, they told her to keep her eyes open and notice everything. She will never get that letter, said Mrs. Herndon. Then she corrected herself and added, not until she goes away. Ordinarily, the mail not given to the prisoners is destroyed. The mail for the suffragists is saved for them until they are ready to go away. I have seen three of the women have one letter each, but that is all. The three were Mrs. Watson, Miss Ewing, and I think Miss Flanagan. The blankets now being used in the prison have been in use since December without being washed or cleaned. Blankets are washed once a year. Officers are warned not to touch any of the bedding. The one officer who handles it is compelled by the regulations to wear rubber gloves while she does so. The sheets for the ordinary prisoners are not changed completely, even when one is gone and another takes her bed. Instead, the top sheet is put on the bottom, and one fresh sheet is given them. I was not there when these suffragists arrived, and I did not know how their bedding was arranged. I doubt whether the authorities would have dared to give them one soiled sheet. The prisoners with disease are not always isolated by any means. In the colored dormitory there are two women in the advanced stages of consumption, women suffering from syphilis, 
who have open sores are put in the hospital, but those whose sores are temporarily healed are put in the same dormitory with the others. There have been several such in my dormitory. When the prisoners come, they must undress and take a shower bath. For this, they take a piece of soap from a bucket in the storeroom. When they are finished, they throw the soap back in the bucket. The suffragists are permitted three showers a week and have only these pieces of soap which are common to all inmates. There is no soap at all in washrooms. The beans, hominy, rice, cornmeal, which is exceedingly coarse, like chicken feed, and cereal have all had worms in them. Sometimes the worms float on top of the soup. Often they are found in the cornbread. The first suffragists sent the worms to Whitaker on a spoon. On the farm is a fine herd of Holsteins. The cream is made into butter and sold to the tuberculosis hospital in Washington. At the officer's table we have very good milk. The prisoners do not have any butter or sugar, and no milk except by order of the doctor. Prisoners are punished by being put on bread or water, or by being beaten. I know of one girl who's been kept seventeen days on only water this month in the booby house. The same was kept nineteen days on water last year because she beat Superintendent Whitaker when he tried to beat her. Superintendent Whitaker or his son are the only ones who beat the girls. Officers are not allowed to lay a hand on them in punishment. I know of one girl beaten until the blood had to be scrubbed from her clothing and from the floor of the booby house. I have never actually seen a girl beaten, but I have seen her afterwards and I have heard the cries and blows. Dorothy Warfield was beaten, and the suffragists heard the beating. Signed, Mrs. Virginia Beauvais. Subscribed and sworn to before me this day of disgust, 1917. Joseph H. Batt. Notary Public. While the administration was planning an investigation of the conditions in the workhouse, which made it difficult for women to sustain health through a 30-day sentence, it was, through its police court, sentencing more women to 60-day sentences under the same conditions. The administration was giving some thought to its plan of procedure, but not enough to master the simple fact that women would not stop going to prison until something had been done which promised passage of the amendment through Congress. New forms of intimidation and hardship were offered by Superintendent Whitaker. Mrs. Frederick Kendall of Buffalo, New York, a frail and highly sensitive woman, was put in a punishment cell on bread and water under a charge of impudence. Mrs. Kendall says that her impudence consisted of protesting to the matron that scrubbing the floors on my hands and knees was too severe work for me, as I had been unable for days to eat the prison food. My impudence further consisted in asking for lighter work. Mrs. Kendall was refused in the clean clothing she should have had the day she was put in solitary confinement, and was thus forced to wear the same clothing eleven days. She was refused a night dress or clean linen for the cot. Her only toilet accommodations was an open pail. For four days she was allowed no water for toilet purposes. Her diet consisted of three thin slices of bread and three cups of water, carried to her in a paper cup, which frequently leaked out half the meager supply before it got to Mrs. Kendall's cell. Representative and Mrs. Charles Bennett Smith of Buffalo, friends of Mrs. Kendall, created a considerable disturbance when they learned of this cruel treatment with the result that Mrs. Kendall was finally given clean clothing and taken from her confinement. When she walked from her cell to greet Mrs. Genevieve Clark Thompson, daughter of Champ Clark, Speaker of the House, and Miss Roberta Bradshaw, other friends who, through the Speaker's influence, had obtained special permission to see Mrs. Kendall, she fell in a dead faint. It was such shocking facts as these that the commissioners and their investigating board were vainly trying to keep from the country for the sake of the reputation of the administration.
for attempting to speak to Mrs. Kendall through her cell door to inquire as to her health, while in solitary, Miss Lucy Burns was placed on a bread-and-water diet. Miss Jeanette Rankin of Montana, the only woman member of Congress, was moved by these and similar revelations to introduce a resolution calling for a congressional investigation of the workhouse. There were among the suffrage prisoners women of all shades of social opinion. The following letter by Miss Gvinter, the young Russian worker, was smuggled out of the workhouse. This appeal to Meyer London was rather pathetic, since not even he, the only socialist member in Congress, stood up to denounce the treatment of the pickets. Comrade Meyer London, I am eight years in this movement, three and a half years a member of the Socialist Party, branches two and four of the Bronx, and I have been an active member of the Wastemakers Union since 1910. I am from New York, but I am now in Baltimore, where I got acquainted with the comrades who asked me to picket the White House, and of course I expressed my willingness to help the movement. I am now in the workhouse. I want to get out and help in the work, as I am more revolutionary than the Woman's Party. Yet conditions here are so bad that I feel I must stay here and help women get their rights. We are enslaved here. I am suffering very much from hunger and nearly blind from the bad nourishment. The food is chiefly soup, cereal with worms, bread just baked and very heavy. Even this poor food, we do not get enough. I do not eat meat. When I told the doctor that, he said, You must eat, and if you don't like it here, you can go tell the judge you won't pick it any more, and then you can get out of here. But I told him that I could not go against my principles and my belief. He asked, Do you believe you should break the law? I replied, I have picketed wherever I had a chance for eight years, and I have never broken the law. Picketing is legal. Please come here as quickly as possible, as we need your help. Will you give the information in this letter to the newspapers? Please pardon this scrap of paper, as I have nothing else to write on. I would write to other comrades, to Hilquit or Paulson, but you are in the Congress and can do more. Yours for the cause, signed Anna Gvinter, Occoquan Workhouse, Friday, September 21st. Miss Gvinter swore to an affidavit when she came out, in which she said in part, The days that we had to stand on scaffolds and ladders to paint the dormitories, I was so weak from lack of food I was dizzy and in constant danger of falling. When they told me to scrub the floors of the lavatories, I refused, because I have to work for my living, and I could not afford to get any of the awful diseases that women down there have. I obeyed all the rules of the institution. The only times I stopped working was because I was too sick to work. Signed, Anna Gvinter sworn to before me and subscribed in my presence this 13th day of October, 1917. Signed, C. Larimore Keeley, Notary Public, D.C. Half a hundred women was the government's toll for one month. Continuous arrests kept the issue hot and kept people who cared in constant protest. It is impossible to give space to the countless beautiful messages which were sent to the women or the fervent protests which went to government officials. Among the hundreds of thousands of protests was a valuable one by Dr. Harvey Wiley, the celebrated food expert, in a letter to Dr. George M. Kober, member of the board in control of the jail and workhouse, and a well-known sanitarium. Dr. Wiley wrote, November 3, 1917. Dear Dr. Kober, I am personally acquainted with many of the women who have been confined at Occoquan and at the district jail and have heard from their own lips an account of the nutrition and sanitary conditions prevailing at both places. I therefore feel constrained to make known to you the conditions as they have been told to me, and as I believe them actually to exist. As I understand it, there is no purpose in penal servitude of lowering the vitality of the prisoner or in inviting disease. 
yet both of these conditions prevailed both at Occoquan and at the district jail. First of all, the food question. The diet furnished the prisoners at Occoquan especially is of a character to invite all kinds of infections that may prevail and to lower the vitality so that the resistance to disease is diminished. I have fortunately come into possession of samples of the food actually given to these women. I have kept samples of the milk religiously for over two weeks to see if I could detect the least particle of fat and have been unable to perceive any. The fat of milk is universally recognized by dietitians as its most important nutritive character. I understand that a dairy is kept on the farm at Occoquan, and yet it is perfectly certain that no whole milk is served or ever has been served to one of the so-called picketers in that jail. I have not had enough of the sample to make a chemical analysis, but being somewhat experienced in milk, I can truthfully say that it seems to me to be watered skimmed milk. I also have a sample of the pea soup served. The pea grains are coarsely broken, often more than half of a pea being served in one piece. They never have been cooked, but are in a perfectly raw state, and found to be inedible by the prisoners. I have also samples of the cornbread, which is most unattractive and repellent to the eye and to the taste. All of these witnesses say that the white bread apparently is of good quality, but the diet in every case is the cause of constipation, except in the case of pea soup, which brings on diarrhea and vomiting. As nutrition is the very foundation of sanitation, I wish to call to your special attention as a sanitarian the totally inadequate sustenance given to these prisoners. The food at the county jail in Washington is much better than the food at Occoquan, but still bad enough. This increased excellence of food is set off by the miserable ventilation of the cells in which these noble women are kept in solitary confinement. Not only have they had a struggle to get the windows open slightly, but also at the time of their morning meal the sweeping is done. The air of the cells is filled with dust, and they try to cover their coffee and other food with such articles as they can find to keep the dust out of their food. Better conditions for promoting tuberculosis could not be found. I appeal to you as a well-known sanitarian to get the Board of Charities to make such rules and regulations as would secure to prisoners of all kinds, and especially to political prisoners, as humane an environment as possible. I also desire to ask that the Board of Charities would authorize me to make inspections of food furnished to prisoners at Occoquan and at the district jail, and to have physical and chemical analysis made without expense to the board, in order to determine more fully the nutritive environment in which the prisoners live. Sincerely, signed Harvey Wiley. This striking telegram from Richard Bennett, the distinguished actor, must have arrested the attention of the administration. September 22, 1917. Honorable Newton Baker, Secretary of War, War Department, Washington, D.C. I have been asked to go to France, personally, with the film of Damaged Goods, as head of a lecture corps to the American Army. On reliable authority, I am told that American women, because they have dared demand their political freedom, are held in vile conditions in the government workhouse in Washington are compelled to paint the negro toilets for eight hours a day, are denied decent food and denied communication with counsel. Why should I work for democracy in Europe when our American women are denied democracy at home? If I am to fight for social hygiene in France, why not begin at Occoquan Workhouse? Richard Bennett. Mr. Bennett never received a reply to this message. Charming companionships grew up in prison. Ingenuity at lifting the dull monotony of imprisonment brought to light many talents for camaraderie which amused not only the suffrage prisoners but the regulars. Locked in separate cells, as in the district jail, the suffragists could still communicate by song. The following lively doggerel to the tune of Captain Kidd 
was sung in chorus to the accompaniment of a hair comb. It became a saga. Each day a new verse was added, relating the day's particular controversy with the prison authorities. We worried Woody Wood as we stood as we stood. We worried Woody Wood as we stood. We worried Woody Wood, and we worried him right good. We worried him right good as we stood. We asked him for the vote as we stood as we stood. We asked him for the vote as we stood. We asked him for the vote, but he'd rather write a note. He'd rather write a note, so we stood. We'll not get out on bail. Go to jail. Go to jail. We'll not get out on bail. We prefer to go to jail. We prefer to go to jail. We're not frail. We asked them for a brush for our teeth for our teeth. We asked them for a brush for our teeth. We asked them for a brush. They said there ain't no rush. They said there ain't no rush. Darn your teeth. We asked them for some air as we choked as we choked. We asked them for some air as we choked. We asked them for some air and they threw us in a lair. They threw us in a lair, so we choked. We asked them for our nighty, as we froze, as we froze. We asked them for our nighty, as we froze. We asked them for our nighty, and they looked tidy tidy. They looked tidy tidy, so we froze. Now, ladies, take the hint, as ye stand, as ye stand. Now, ladies, take the hint, as ye stand. Now, ladies, take the hint. Don't quote the president. Don't quote the president, as ye stand. Humor predominated in the poems that came out of the prison. There was never any word of tragedy. Not even an intolerable diet of raw salt pork, which by actual account of Miss Margaret Potheringham, a teacher of domestic science and dietetics, was served the suffragists sixteen times in eighteen days, could break their spirit of gaiety. And when a piece of fish of unknown origin was slipped through the tiny opening in the cell door, and a specimen carefully preserved for Dr. Wiley, who, by the way, was unable to classify it, they were more diverted than outraged. Sometimes it was a prayer which enlivened the evening hour before bedtime. Mary Windsor of Haverford, Pennsylvania, was the master prayer maker. One night it was a Baptist prayer, another a Methodist, and still another a stern Presbyterian prayer. The prayers were most disconcerting to the matron, for the regulars became almost hysterical with laughter when they should be slipping into sleep. It was trying also to sit in the corridor and hear your daily cruelties narrated to God and punishment asked. This is what happened to the embarrassed warden and jail attendants if they came to protest. Sometimes it was the beautiful voice of Vida Mulholland which rang through the corridors of the dreary prison with a stirring Irish ballad, a French love song, or the women's Marseillaise. Again the prisoners would build a song, each calling out from cell to cell and contributing a line. The following song, to the tune of Charlie is my darling, was so written and sung with Miss Lucy Branham leading. Shout the revolution of women. Shout the revolution of women of women. Shout the revolution for liberty. Rise, glorious women of the earth, the voiceless and the free. United strength assures the birth of true democracy. Refrain. Invincible our army, forward, forward. Triumphant daughters pressing to victory. Shout the revolution of women of women. Shout the revolution for liberty. Men's revolution born in blood. But ours conceived in peace, we hold a banner for a sword, till all oppression cease. Refrain. Prison death defying, onward, onward, triumphant daughters pressing to victory. The gaiety was interspersed with sadness when the suffragists learned of new cruelties heaped upon the helpless ones, those who were without influence or friends. They learned of that barbarous punishment known as the greasy pole used upon girl prisoners. 
This method of punishment consisted of strapping girls with their hands tied behind them to a greasy pole from which they were partly suspended. Unable to keep themselves in an upright position because of the grease on the pole, they slipped almost to the floor, with their arms all but severed from the arm sockets, suffering intense pain for long periods of time. This cruel punishment was meted out to prisoners for slight infractions of the prison rules. The suffrage prisoners learned also of the race hatred which the authorities encouraged. It was not infrequent that the jail officers summoned black girls to attack white women if the latter disobeyed. This happened in one instance to the suffrage prisoners who were protesting against the wardens forcibly taking a suffragist from the workhouse without telling her or her comrades whither she was being taken. Black girls were called and commanded to physically attack the suffragists. The negresses, reluctant to do so, were goaded to deliver blows upon the women by the warden's threats of punishment, and as a result of our having been in prison, our headquarters has never ceased being the mecca of many discouraged inmates when released. They come for money, they come for work, they come for spiritual encouragement to face life after the wrecking experience of imprisonment. Some regard us as fellow prisoners, others regard us as friends at court. Occasionally we meet a prison associate in the workaday world. Long after Mrs. Lawrence Lewis's imprisonment, when she was working on ratification of the amendment in Delaware, she was greeted warmly by a charming young woman who came forward at a meeting. "'Don't you remember me?' she asked, as Mrs. Lewis struggled to recollect. "'Don't you remember me? I met you in Washington.' "'I'm sorry, but I seem to have forgotten where I met you,' said Mrs. Lewis apologetically. "'In jail,' came the answer hesitantly whereupon Mrs. Lewis listened sympathetically while her fellow prisoner told her that she had been in jail at the time Mrs. Lewis was, that her crime was bigamy and that she was one of the traveling circus troupe then in Dover. She brought up her husband, also a member of the circus, said Mrs. Lewis in telling of the incident, and they both joined enthusiastically in a warm invitation to come and see them in the circus. As each group of suffragists was released, an enthusiastic welcome was given to them at headquarters at these times, in the midst of the warmth of approving and appreciative comrades, some of the most beautiful speeches were delivered. I quote a part of Catherine Fisher's speech at a dinner in honor of released prisoners. Five of us who are here with you tonight have recently come out from the workhouse into the world. A great change? Not so much of a change for women, disenfranchised women. In prison or out, American women are not free. Our lot of physical freedom simply gives us and the public a new and vivid sense of what our lack of political freedom really means. Disenfranchisement is the prison of women's power and spirit. Women have been long classed with criminals so far as their voting rights are concerned, and how quick the government is to live up to its classification the minute women determinedly insist upon these rights. Prison life epitomizes all life under undemocratic rule. At Occoquan, as at the Capitol and the White House, we faced hypocrisy, trickery, and treachery on the part of those in power. And the constant appeal to us to cooperate with the workhouse authorities sounded wonderfully like the exhortation addressed to all women to support the government. Is that the law of the District of Columbia? I asked Superintendent Whitaker concerning a statement he had made to me. It is the law, he answered, because it is the rule I make. The answer of Whitaker is the answer Wilson makes to women every time the government, of which he is the head, enacts a law and at the same time continues to refuse to pass the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. We seem today to stand before you free, 
but I have no sense of freedom because I have left comrades at Occoquan, and because other comrades may at any moment join them there. While comrades are there, what is our freedom? It is as empty as the so-called political freedom of women who have won suffrage by a state referendum. Like them we are free only within limits. We must not let our voice be drowned by war trumpets or cannon. If we do, we shall find ourselves, when the war is over, with a peace that will only prolong our struggle, a democracy that will belie its name by leaving out half the people. The administration continued to send women to the workhouse and the district jail for thirty and sixty day sentences. End of section nine.